I'll be reading from Hebrews 13, 14 through 16. For we have no con continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. If I may, let me ask you to turn to Hebrews chapter 13. That's where we will be almost entirely this evening. I don't know whether to take offense or not. Ray didn't ask me how long I prepared. If I could lie with a straight face, I'd say 15 minutes. But <laughs> honestly, I usually take a couple of days to make a decision what to do. So I have invested some time uh, for sure. The book of Hebrews is one of the more meaningful books, I think, in the New Testament at the same time. I have to confess it's probably one of those books that uh, uh, I have the weaker knowledge of. So in light of that, I'm standing up here tonight and asking you to take a, a closer, deeper look at it. Uh, there are others uh, in our audience probably who could uh, speak with more authority about uh, uh, who wrote it, uh, to whom, and, and so forth. I'm going to dispense with with that, but I will let you know that I believe that uh, uh, the the, uh, the book, it, it's only in some places a letter-like, uh, it, it is uh, to an extent here in chapter 13 that, that we will look at it, but it's not a letter. In my mind, it's actually a sermon, maybe a long sermon, but a sermon Nevertheless, whoever wrote it, the inspired writer, I think, uh, addressed it to a group of Jewish Christians who probably were facing uh, some kind of persecution. The book indicates not to the shedding of, of blood, as I recall, but persecution of some, uh, some kind. And maybe they were going through things that uh, caused them to to doubt and, and to even considering turning their back on, on their chosen uh, of faith. I, I do think they, they have a Jewish background because uh, the non-Jew would not understand many of the images that come from the Old Testament, the sacrificial system, and, and so forth. But I'm suggesting you take a, a closer look at the book, and uh, particularly at chapter 13. One reason I chose chapter 13 is it's one of those places in the New Testament and in Scripture where we have a rather neat list to follow. Most of us in our everyday lives use to-do lists. Women are good at making those up for their husbands. Um, there are checklists. I go uh, to the car dealer, and they come out with a long list. I think it's beyond one page now, and they'd like to check all those things off, and they'd like to particularly check those things that they think I should uh, have them do 
in addition to the thing or things that I came in for. That's the way we live, and I think it's not a bad approach for us to use going to Scripture uh, as well. First of all, though, think about the, the opening words of this book, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. One of the, the most impressive openings to a New, De New Testament book that, that I can think of. Before we go to that list in, in chapter 13, let's just think about uh, some of the things we learn uh, quickly in the book. We certainly are impressed with the emphasis placed on the superiority of Jesus Christ. He is a better name. He's better than the angels for two reasons. One, he's a better messenger, and two, he has a better message. He's better than Moses, and he's better than, than the priesthood. Unlike the high priest that uh, we, we read of in, in the Old Testament, he's like Melchizedek. He's without beginning and without end. And he has a superior ministry. Or to put it another way, he has superior things to offer to us. He has a better covenant for us. God had one covenant at this time and another at another time. The covenant that Jesus Christ brings to us is a better covenant. He brings a better sanctuary, thinking in terms of, of the author of, of the book. And he is a better sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice. The last thing that uh, we could note, I think, is that particularly the, the chapter we're looking at this, this evening uh, deals with not only is, is Christ superior in all these ways, but this is a, a superior way of life. So one commentator actually puts a heading for chapter 13, the superiority of the believer's privileges. And indeed, uh, this is a very, very uh, good uh, list for us to, to look at. If we dig deeper than the checklist, the to-do list, then fine. But since Scripture provides us with portions of scripture like this, I don't think I ever have any good reason to say, you know, I'm not so sure where I am as God's child at the moment. I feel like I'm kind of treading water, or I, I feel like I'm, I'm going in circles. Uh, God doesn't feel very close to me, and so forth. Well, 
it would be passing judgment, but I think I can kindly pass judgment. If I really feel that way, then that's a pretty good indication that I haven't been in the book very much lately because there are some places that will give me some simple guidance. And I could look at those and I can then look back at myself and if I'm doing all right there, I can check that off and I, I can move on. I don't want to oversimplify the matter, but indeed I do think that scripture provides us this kind of, of benefit. So let's don't ever say I, I don't have any guidance and I don't know where I stand before God. Except when I do, if it, I do that honestly, I probably can, can tell that I'm not close at all. Okay, verse 1 of, of chapter 13. Simply let brotherly love continue. The writer is assuming there is brotherly love, and so uh, he doesn't bother to say practice brotherly love. He simply says continue to practice brotherly love. I'm not going to take a lot of time with this particular verse. I think each one of us, if, if we sat uh, around the table, probably could make all sorts of su suggestions about how we could uh, better our brotherly love, strengthen our love, uh, brotherly love in the church, and so forth. The important thing here, I think, is that Everything we read below depends in some way or the other on brotherly love. This is basic to it, and I think the writer uh, goes with it first in, in that very way. When I think about families, and, and that's one thing that we are as a church, God's family, um, that bothers some people, but that's biblical in in my mind, and, and I think it's helpful for us to think in, in those terms sometimes. If, if I think, for instance, that I'm better than someone else, if I stop to think that in God's family he has people of different colors and different nationalities, but they're all still God's family, I've got to treat them like family, and, and that says... Uh, uh, something to me. Back home, we would have known families that, uh, as we said back there, fussed a lot. Uh, you may know some families like that. I don't know of any of those fussing families, though, when attacked or when they thought in the least they were attacked, did not pull together and resist the attack. Woe be the attacker that criticized someone in that family. So I think uh, I'll leave it there. I would suggest, even though we're a big body, five, six hundred, seven hundred, whatever we are, it's hard to know everyone. But I think that's one thing we can do in strengthening our brotherly love, try to know more people within our family. And uh, as we do know more people, then think in, in those terms. We're family. The enemy is out there. Satan is our enemy. Uh, we don't get along perfectly all the time, but we can pull together against the common enemy. Verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, 
for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. This is a verse, and, and unfortunately some may have heard me get on a soapbox of, about this. Uh, I have a problem with the word hospitality. Our translators in the ESV uh, use hospitality. It's hard not to use hospitality, but hospitality means something else to us usually. We use it in, in different ways. And so I think we miss some of the basic uh, uh, point of, of the command uh, here. I think the simplest way to get at this is if, and I think we all know the term Philadelphia, uh, brotherly love, uh, the love of brotherly type on, on the front, and, and then brother is the last part of the name. If, if instead of that, I, uh, I, I make that uh, compound word stranger love, then that's basically the word that is here in, in the Greek text that we're looking at today. So it's practi practicing brotherly love toward uh, strangers. This is hard for us to, to get our arms around sometimes because we think in terms of what I would call fellowship as being hospitality, uh, and indeed it is in, in one sense, but there is more to it. So I think we simply need to ask what was um, this practice of stranger love in ancient times? Well, in the ancient world, I living along some road that's traveled would expect that now and then someone would knock on the door late in the day. They're traveling from afar. They don't have a place to stay or enough food to eat tonight. And I would expect that, not as a Christian, by the way, I think most who considered themselves good people in the ancient culture would practice that. I have an obligation to bring that one or that family, whatever it is, in to, um, to care for them for the night and to send them on their way today, uh, tomorrow. And sometimes it was more than, than one night in, in that situation. And then when Christianity comes along, this is a way that uh, Christianity uh, worked to spread itself, to evangelize uh, the world. Uh, preachers and teachers traveled without enough funds to get very far, but they could stop in a particular place and Christian homes were open so they could stay the night, be fed, perhaps be offered some money for their, their travel. And that was the way they practiced um, hospitality as, as we uh, normally use it. Notice the blessing uh, for whereby some have entertained angels unawares. I think most all of us immediately go to uh, Genesis chapter 18 where Abraham and Sarah uh, entertained <coughs> uh, the three uh, men <coughs> And we come to know them as, as angels, and, and that's natural. But let's, let's remember that there are many 
examples in both Old and, and New Testament, I think particularly in, in Old uh, Testament, of those who practiced hospitality in, in this sense. And by the way, I think even more powerful is the fact that we have two or three negative examples, examples of people who refused to practice hospitality, would not uh, let a stranger uh, in. Sometimes I think that maybe Jesus himself may be uh, helpful in our understanding of this. In Luke chapter 14, it's a familiar uh, saying of his, but let me remind you of it. He says, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives, your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And since we've gone that far, what does Jesus say in Matthew 25 in the judgment scene? He says, I was hungry and, and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. And then a few verses later to the other groups, uh, other group, he says, uh, you gave me no food and you gave me no drink and you did not um, welcome me. This is uh, it's something that I, th I think that all of us need to, to give um, greater thought to. In fact, I've talked about this before, and I won't uh, bore you with, with all of this, but I think if we thought even more widely, and I can't help but uh, think of um, um, uh, Annie Mae Laws in, in uh, uh, Hickory Flat, Mississippi. Um, she couldn't, well, she did keep people when, when they came. She did practice that way. Uh, but I think of the times that she uh, uh, wrote a missionary, an encouraging, might just be paragraph or so, but an encouraging note and put $5 in it or, or $10. Uh, now, we have other ways of supporting missionaries all right, but Hickory Flat was a small church and she wanted to do more than what the church was doing. Well, that doesn't sound like um, hospitality, uh, the practice of hospitality, but indeed she was doing the same thing when she put a check in a letter to a missionary that the people in the first century were doing to help a preacher, teacher, traveling, uh, to evangelize that someone did for them when they kept them in their home and fed them and sent them on their way. Verse 3, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. Seems to me say uh, that the uh, author is, is saying uh, understand that, that you are imprisoned yourself. What's it like? You suffer there. Remember those who do. And of course, many in prison in, in that time 
were, were there not because of crimes, but because of poverty or, or because of whim of, of rulers or some other reason. Plus, many of those uh, depended on, on food and other needs for family and friends. The state didn't take care of them as, as it does in, in modern times. We have lots of, I don't, I can't count the number, I'm not familiar with this, men and women here in this congregation who, um, who serve in the prison ministry. It occurs to me, and I'm just kind of thinking out loud, we need some time to give them an opportunity to tell the rest of us what it's like to serve these people, to tell us what it's like in prison. Some of us may have been at times. There was a time I, I taught for Faulkner in, in the prison at um, Union Springs, but most of us don't know at all what it's like. And uh, maybe that's something I'll bring up in, in elders' meetings sometime. But again, uh, what's said is remember those in prison. Try to put yourself in, in their shoes. Verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. This is short and to the point, absolutely necessary in the first century. Everywhere the Christian looked, um, morals were were those that the Apostle Paul describes in Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2. So it's almost as though literally one could not leave his house without encountering something that uh, was a reminder of the morals that uh, were practiced uh, in, that, uh, in that time. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. With two words, the author has covered most everything there. The first word in my translation is two words, but it's, it's one word. And it uh, describes all sexual conduct that, um, that is immoral, actually outside of the marriage bond of, of man and woman. And then the second one covers, of course, the adulterous conduct of, of one of the mates. I appeal to uh, parents. Uh, we live, in fact, in a moment, I'm going to talk a little bit about this. I think we live in times that are much, much more like the first century than the times were when people my age were children, for instance. If it were needed then, and it was, then it's needed now. And the time to start is for parents to begin with their children at a young age. Don't leave it later to the youth minister. We have good youth ministers. They'll do their best. Don't leave it to preachers. Don't leave it to elders. We have responsibilities, yes, but... Don't let it go that far. We live in a sinful world, 
And the temptations are there every day. You probably have noticed, I do, sex is behind many of the, uh, the TV advertisements that I see, commercials and so forth. Sometimes I open the morning paper and uh, sex is behind a print ad implied here and, and there. So we live in a day when it is all around us and the temptations are great and uh, the young uh, are bombarded through, through music, their peers, everything that uh, one can think of in their, in their life, and um, we, we simply have to begin young. This is an aside, and, and maybe it, it won't be inappropriate for me to, to say here, and I don't want to uh, sound pompous in the least. Um, I've lived a good few, many good years now and, and I have seen lots of changes from my boyhood to my young adulthood and into middle age and whatever I am at, at this point. And I see changes along the way. But I'll confess to you, I can think of a particular period that I think was, was one of the crucial periods in, in our history in this country and that was the 1960s. Augustine and I moved to Stillwater, Oklahoma to um, do what most people thought of as Bible chair work in, in those days. And indeed, I did teach um, classes, religion classes in Oklahoma State University. The church, uh, of course, had other responsibilities for me uh, as well. They supported me in teaching. I wasn't paid by Oklahoma State. But they call me university minister. Um, I sit over there sometimes and I look over at the group of Faulkner students here and, and I think back to 1965 and 1966. It's, it's a work that uh, provides a lot of satisfaction and I can understand that uh, Andrew probably feels that. It's challenging at the same time and I'm sure he he feels that as well. But I look back and I realize students have changed, and, and they have through, through the decades. I'll tell you one, one story. Hopefully it won't take too long for me to tell you this. When I went to Oklahoma State, they were practicing uh, uh, having a, a week of what they called religious emphasis week. Students at the time, even those who were appreciative of it, sometimes joked it was the nod to God uh, week. If I stop to think about it, one week out of 52 probably is a nod to whatever it is you do the, the one week. But they were still, that was a state university, a big one, and they were uh, having religious emphasis week. Added to that, though, the following year was uh, a week on, on sex. Um, that sounds strange. I can't remember the, the title that was given to it. But I remember very well the first one. I, I sat there uh, not because I wanted to, but because I felt I needed to know what students were being offered uh, on campus. They brought in several a well-known 
uh, hedonist philosophers. A hedonist simply is, is one who believes that uh, uh, our, our search for, for the best good is a search for pleasure. I do remember that um, one of those hedonists was wise enough to, to counsel the students, but you need to remember that a pleasure now is not, al uh, not always a pleasure tomorrow. Some things pleasure will turn into be, uh, in fact, uh, down the road, rather unpleasant things, things that cannot be undone. The next year, or the next, I've, I've forgotten just which, uh, a more well-known man came, Joseph Fletcher, Dr. Joseph Fletcher. Young people won't know that name. If you're my age, you may uh, know that uh, name. He made a lot of money writing books like uh, Situation Ethics. Um, he also made a lot of money on speaking tours as a result of, of what he had, had written. Things that, that we see as uh, plain and simple commands in situation ethics, I, I look at the situation and I determine, you know, that's usually true, but in this situation we can bend that uh, uh, moral norm in this way to, to suit the particular situation we're in. Most of you know this, even most of the young people, but uh, draw a lesson from this. I listened to Joseph Fletcher every time he spoke. In fact, our local minister in Stillwater debated the subject with him one afternoon, two or three hours this went on, a very courageous act, by the way, on the part of our, our minister. But I made sure that, uh, I'm not sure how I did this, but I got invitations to all these uh, things. I listened to Joseph Fletcher when he talked to the administration and faculty. And there he would basically say, you know, I've been misunderstood. My writings, my speeches, and so forth, I've been misunderstood. And that's caused me to be misrepresented. And sometimes that's caused me to be mistreated. Okay, I also listened to him talk to, I believe, one of the civic clubs in, in town. In essence, he was talking to some of the, the city fathers in, in that situation. And he, did, he said, I've been misunderstood, misrepresented, and uh, sometimes mistreated. Well, he certainly didn't uh, say any of that in, in the debate. But there was also an occasion when he talked to students only, and I'm not sure whether he thought only students are there, no one else to hear or not. I remember it was on the Green Mall in the center of the campus, down by the Goose Pond, and it was 11 o'clock at night. I think he felt safe. Basically, what he told the students at that time was, if two people consent, then go ahead and enjoy whatever it is, do it. He was an Episcopal priest, ordained. He taught in an Episcopal seminary at the time. He died in 1991, and I'm told that he died uh, an atheist. 
the lesson in all of that, I think, is that um, the extremists, either on the left or the right, be careful of them. They're often charlatans, uh, con men, and uh, he certainly was. But to those people who took him seriously, he was a very, very dangerous uh, man. Verses 5 and 6, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And then he quotes from Psalm 118 verse 6, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do for me? This is something I think comes home for all of us. I've lived long enough myself to realize that I don't have to have a whole lot of things uh, to risk the danger of putting my trust in things. I don't have to have a lot of the adult toys that many people have and, and put their trust in. In other words, I don't have to be a wealthy man to be in danger as the writer warns here. I think this is a problem that maybe a majority of us as Christians have really putting our trust in the Lord. I think it's good to, uh, to do what we can to advance our, uh, our profession, to advance our business and so forth, but somewhere along the line for some people it means they cross the line and begin to trust in things rather than in God. The psalmist David had something to say that I have difficulty putting my trust in, but I trust that it's true, and I try to live by it. David says, I've been young, and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging bread. I think that's a commentary on what the author says here in these uh, two verses. Verse 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Later, he will speak of leaders and our respect for them, our obedience to them. I take this to mean that he's saying remember them in the sense, for instance, remember the person who led you to Christ. You owe your spiritual life to that person in, in a sense. I think it's that kind of, of remembering that uh, the writer of Hebrews is, is asking us to do. Why? Because that person, let's say that person is no longer with us. That person died in faith. He was faithful to the end. Or she could be a mother or father. Someone important in teaching you, a preacher, an elder, uh, someone else but remember and I think the reason why is be inspired by the faith that you saw in them the consistency of, of life that was uh, characteristic of them and be inspired yourself to continue this is one of those places by the way where I think um, maybe the audience we get a glimpse of that maybe the audience of this letter indeed are people who are beginning to waver a little bit in their, in their faith. 
if we have a right to say this sort of thing at all, then I think I can say that of, of, of verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. What I'm going to say is it's one of the great sentences in all of, of Scripture. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That tells me several things, I think. There will be mentioned shortly of those who uh, uh, are attracted by strange teachings, strange doctrines. If I am, I need to ask myself, does that take me away from Jesus? He's the same yesterday, today, and, and uh, forever. Uh, another thing is I can... I realize this about myself. Some days I'm up, some days I'm down. I try to be consistent. I try to stay with the Lord, but I'm up and down. But I have the assurance that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Verse 9, I think, as I've indicated, goes with it. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods. Another little clue that maybe these are Jewish Christians uh, that are in danger, which have not benefited those devoted to them. There are several verses now that uh, are figurative in, in nature, and certainly this section is, is one of those uh, sections that reminds us, well, it reminds us of the rest of the book before this because we have the figurative images built upon the Old Testament, the sacrificial system, the priesthood, and so forth. We have an altar, and I think we can substitute the word sacrifice here. We have a sacrifice from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin, are burned outside the camp. Without reading all of those verses, obviously what's being described here is the, the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. Um, the priest normally would have a part of the sacrifice to eat as, as a part of his living. That's not true with this sacrifice. By the way, the Day of Atonement was Wednesday before last. I didn't see it noted in the paper this time. It, it usually is. So I know our Jewish neighbors in Montgomery observed it from uh, sundown on Tuesday through um, sundown on, on Wednesday. What he's uh, getting at here, of course, is the bodies of, of animals sacrificed on the Day of Atonement were not eaten. They were taken outside the camp and burned. And then he will tie this with Jesus Christ, who himself was taken outside the city, John chapter 19, verse 17, sacrificed, crucified outside the gates of Jerusalem. I think the purpose probably here again is to elevate Christ in, the, in our minds as, as we uh, read this. Continue on, verse 14, for we have no lasting city, 
but we seek the city that is to come. We sing every once in a while. Uh, our song leaders maybe know how often, frequently enough that I remember it. Um, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. In fact, it's hard to say it without singing it as well. I wonder, do we believe it? Do we really believe it? Or maybe a, a, a good question is, do I understand what I'm saying when I sing that song? This is what is expected of us. We don't have a lasting city. We seek the city that is to come. Peter reminds his readers in uh, 1 Peter, the beginning of chapter 1, the beginning of chapter 2, that they are exiles and sojourners. They don't live where they are. They aren't citizens where they are. The Apostle Paul reminds the Philippians in chapter 3 and in verse 20 that their citizenship isn't in heaven. That's interesting to me. In essence, the Apostle Paul is saying, you Philippians know above all other people that your citizenship is not Philippi, and I'm reminding you it's not even Rome. You live in Rome, uh, you live in Philippi, a Roman colony, but you say your citizenship is actually Roman. And he reminds them, your citizenship is in heaven. How well do we, uh, well, let me ask, this is, this is kind of blunt and, and to the point, but when you daydream, do you daydream of heaven? Or do you dr daydream of stocks and bonds and, and things, the things that I can feel and touch uh, here uh, at this time? And then the, our text that was read earlier, verse 15 and 16. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is a, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share with what you, ha share what you have, for, what, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. This is our sacrifice, and while it may be a little hard to follow the section about Jesus being crucified outside the city, I think is the lead-in to the idea that we have a city, not here, but a city above, and our sacrifices are not animal sacrifices, but the fruit of our lips. As we sang tonight, we were offering our sacrifices. I think the, the author means more. I suspect any time we profess our faith, any time we teach others, any time that um, we, we, we confess to, uh, to others, we're actually offering that sacrifice of praise. But quickly, he adds verse 16, to that, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices as noted in both verses are pleasing to God. Verse 17, obey your leaders. It's a command. I'm uncomfortable on two counts telling you 
verse 17 says obey, but it does. On the other hand, I'm uncomfortable because it says I and my fellow elders everywhere will be held to account for our leadership. It's not comfortable for us. But on the other hand, it's a responsibility on both sides, including your sides. He could, your side. He continues, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. In simple terms, don't make it harder than it has to be. And I'm sure I speak for every elder tonight. Please, please, don't make it harder than it has to be. He ends with a benediction, a pronouncement of a blessing. This is letter-like. <clears throat> it's Old Testament-like. I don't know that the Apostle Paul wrote this, but it's Apostle Paul-like, and it's meaningful, and we'll close with that this evening. Now, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. It's a pronouncement of blessing on us. It's also words of, of worship as well. This lesson this evening has been intended for us, the brothers and sisters, the church here. There may be someone in our audience, however, who has a particular need that needs to be made public this evening, and we do have the invitation. We invite you, if that's so, we invite you to come as we stand and sing.